Hello, St. Louis, and welcome to the STL Leaders Podcast, hosted by Brian Bisking. Brian started this weekly podcast to give a voice to leaders of our community, to share their story, their journey, and the lessons that they have learned along the way. Brian grew up in a small town outside of St. Louis, where he watched his father run a small business and was always interested in how the leaders in his community got where they are. Whether it's a local business leader, a philanthropist, or a celebrity, these are your STL leaders. Join us today, where we will chat with another pillar of our community on this week's episode of the STL Leaders Podcast. And now, your host, Brian Bisking. Hello, St. Louis, and welcome to this week's episode of the STL Leaders Podcast. On this week's episode, we welcome Jason Carter. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to thank my sponsors. First, NWO IT Services, Synchrony HR, Enterprise Bank and Trust, Go Brand Go, The Tom James Company, and Edward Jones. And now to this week's episode with Jason Carter. Jason Carter, welcome to the STL Leaders Podcast. I appreciate you joining me today. Likewise, Brian. Good to be here. Absolutely. Well, we got connected through Jennifer Bardot over at Enterprise Bank and Trust, a, a big friend, a uh, sponsor of ours and a good friend of mine. And I'm excited to kind of uh, share with our St. Louis community today your story. Um, I always kind of start uh, in the beginning. So why don't we talk about growing up and what led you to starting your current organization? Sure, Brian. So I am a St. Louis native, having grown up in uh, Pacific, Missouri. I went to school at what was then the University of Missouri, Rolla, got an engineering degree, and the Navy was looking for engineers, raiding technical colleges, and they raided Rolla and found Jason Carter. So I joined the Navy, went to officer candidate school and submarine nuclear training after college, became an nuclear trained submarine officer and ended up spending 20 years in the Navy. I managed to finagle my last three years in the service, which I knew were going to be my final three years back at Scott Air Force Base, Illinois, hometown USA. And I spent my last three years in the Navy there, retired from the Navy after a 20 year career in 2009 Stayed in the area, got a job with a defense contractor doing business at Scott Air Force Base. Spent about 18 months learning how to do business with the Department of Defense and thought, hey, I could do this myself. And I started Uncommon in the fall of 2010. It was Aegis Strategies at the time. It's Uncommon now. Same company, same management structure. We just rebranded a few years ago. And the rest, they say, is kind of history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for those who don't know, why don't you tell us what Uncommon is? So we're a technical consultancy. We originally could have been termed a defense contractor. And of course, we still do that. But we have since expanded into the commercial sector, the private sector as well. And if you know what a, what a design build firm is in the construction industry, we're kind of a design build firm in the technology industry. And so we will help large enterprises. The Department of Defense 
in some cases or large organizations and others solve their most complex problem sets through designing and building, I'll say, especially secure technology systems. We operated and grew up in the Department of Defense where cybersecurity is extremely important. And we kind of have that in our DNA. And that's been part of our success as we've moved out into the private sector. That's really cool. So I also know that you, um, you know, Tony Bryan, who has been on this podcast with CyberUp, and you uh, are on the board for them. Is that right? Yeah, I could claim to be the founder of CyberUp. We we wrote the strategic plan that resulted in the in the uh, stand up of the Midwest Cyber Center, which itself rebranded and became CyberUp. And when we wrote the plan, there was really no one there to fund it. And we raised our hands and said, well, we, we would hire the executive director and fund it for the first two years to get it off the ground. And so I became the president of the board. We funded and funded it and got it off the ground, actually housed it for the first couple of years of its existence. And next month, I will roll off the board after my six years as the president and really with a lot of pride looking and seeing an organization that's become a national class organization in cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's really cool. I, yeah, we've had, I know Tony uh, quite a while and we've had him on this show. And so it's nice to have you on the show as well now. Thanks, Brian. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I asked Tony this question. I've asked all the people on the have on the show that had a military background. Talk to me about that background and how that has helped you, you know, not only in the role you have today, but kind of since you've gotten out of the military and the Navy, how has the, the background of that helped kind of propel you into private sector, but also the business world? You know, Brian, I had an interesting Navy career that included a submerged collision with a Russian submarine, being in the Pentagon on September 11th, being in the Middle East for shock and awe, being in the Far East when the tsunami hit out in Indonesia, being on the Abraham Lincoln when President Bush landed and gave his infamous mission accomplished speech. But the only time in my life I can remember being really intimidated was when I was retiring from the Navy and facing the specter of having to survive in the private sector. I, I didn't know what that was going to be like. I joined the Navy at 19 years old, and it's all I had ever known. Sure. What, what I didn't know, though, was how well it was going to prepare me not necessarily for understanding business, but for understanding people, understanding leadership, understanding how to get things done, knowing how to mobilize resources and operate in an uncertain environment, figure out what your assets are you have to, to run with, and then putting them together and making things happen. And so I think in hindsight, you know, 12 years later, it prepared me pretty well. Sure. Well, you know, you're, you know, some people I talk to that I have necessarily haven't had on the show, um, that is a challenge when you get out of the military uh, and try to get into the private sector. It's not as easy as some may may think. Um, and I know there's uh, there's a guy here in St. Louis. His name's Nathan. I won't say his last name, but he works with a lot of people who get out of the military having challenges finding um, opportunities and positions that maybe fit their skill set. Uh, they do retreats all the time. It's, it's a really cool uh, nonprofit organization that he kind of oversees here in St. Louis. But um, 
but you're saying that, you know, you, it prepared you well for kind of what you're doing now. Yes, I would say so. Not necessarily from a technical perspective. There weren't sure. that many nuclear submarines out there in the civilian sector for me to, <laughs> to go operate. Sure. And, and that was part of the intimidation, right, was, yeah. was knowing how to translate your skill sets. Sure. I chose to start in the defense contracting industry where I kind of had one foot in the military still and one foot out. And that was a deliberate strategy on my part to kind of leapfrog into the private sector by staying in the defense industry for a bit. Yeah, makes total sense. Makes total sense. I want to go back to something you said earlier, um, and I know you and I have talked about this previously, but you mentioned that you were in the Pentagon on 9-11. Talk to us about that experience. That was one of the most surreal days in, in my life, as you might expect. I was in the basement on the complete opposite side of the Pentagon where the plane hit, and my responsibility was to run a global broadcasting service that sent television broadcasts out to DOD assets all around the world. And one of my people came to my desk, you know, about nine o'clock that morning and said, sir, you need to come out here and look at this. A plane just flew into the uh, Twin Towers. And so I walked out and I was watching what everybody else was perhaps watching at the time when the second plane hit. And as soon as the second plane hit, all, all doubts were, were gone that this was an attack. Sure. So I watched for a couple of minutes, went and called my wife, told her she needed to, to turn on the TV, what was going on. And her prophetic warning was, well, they'll get you next. They're, they're not done. And I, I thought that was kind of silly and dismissed it. Hung up the phone and about two minutes later felt what felt like an earthquake. And my first thought was, well, they did hit us, but then it kind of went away and it was quiet as far apart as we were. Sure. One of our people had been in the, the courtyard in the center of the Pentagon, which is open air, had seen the plane hit, uh, came running down that the Pentagon was being evacuated. And I was the, the senior guy down there. I helped evacuate about 300 people. And then when that was done, I stopped by the medical center in the Pentagon because I had damage control and first aid experience from my time in the Navy, offered my help, ended up fighting fires and evacuating uh, people most of the day um, and just didn't have time to think about what was going on very, very frequently. But anytime I did have a time to just collect my thoughts, it was most mostly disbelief that I was sitting in the headquarters of the Department of Defense of the greatest military in the world and we were under attack. Yeah. I, you know, just listening to you talk about that gives me chills. I mean, I think everybody, <clears throat> excuse me, knows where they were at on that day, but for you to actually be in the middle of it um, and hear your story and hear your account of how that day happened for you is just kind of overwhelming still to this day, you know, 20 something years later. It tends to be on the anniversaries that all the images come back. I don't know what it is about the human psyche, but I, I distinctly remember the 10th anniversary was a Sunday morning and I was sitting in church on Sunday morning and my pastor used the opportunity to uh, talk about that day and, and leap off of 
the observations from that day to give a sermon. And I don't know if it was that it was the 10 year anniversary or what, but all the images of that day that I guess were completely suppressed. I didn't know I had those memories just came kind of, kind of back in a flood. Sure. Sure. Well, thank you for your service and thank you for, you know, helping evacuate those 300 people that day. I, it's uh, it's still a day, you know, I'm 35 years old, so there's not a lot of days when it comes to, you know, like I wasn't alive for D-Day and I wasn't alive for some of the, some of those profound Pearl Harbor, those profound days in history. Um, and, you know, so 9-11, it sticks out like a, you know, sore thumb. I mean, it, I, I can remember exactly what I was doing, the thoughts that were going through my head. I was only 15 years old when it happened. And I thought to myself, you know, when the first two planes hit, I still didn't fully comprehend what was going on, you know, until you start listening to commentary and the news and the radio and things like that. And they're explaining it. But at the time it was like, we're America and this is happening to us in our own backyard. It, it was, it was a, it was a sad day for sure. Agree. What are some of the challenges that you faced when you started your business? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, Brian, I started the business, I guess, the best way anybody could start a consulting business, which was having a contract in hand on day one. I, I quit my previous job with a contract for my consulting services on day one. And so that was a great way to start the business. And that contract had about two and a half years left on it. And I kind of viewed that as the runway I had to get my business off the ground and turn it from a, a one-man consulting company into a real company. And so, you know, there's a great book out there called The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. And E stands for entrepreneurial. So it's the myth of entrepreneurialism by, by Michael Gerber. And he talks about the difference between working in your business and working on your business. And that language has kind of made its way into the popular business culture. But it's, it's a reality that, you know, if you're a consultant, you consult 20, 30, 40 hours a week, but then all the stuff about growing a business happens outside of that. Absolutely. And it's something very different. And it's, you know, it's building systems, building policies and procedures implementation of those systems, policies, and procedures, instantiating them in the culture and all those kinds of things. And I would say every phase of growth is, is a brand new challenge that really is what makes my job fun and, and keeps me coming in every week to, to continue doing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, let's shift gears here a little bit. Uh, I'd love to learn more about your views on leadership. Obviously, I, I, I can imagine I'm going to ask some questions here as we go through this, but I can imagine a lot of your leadership skill sets comes from your background in the military. But what are you, what is your individual view on leadership and how do you currently lead your organization? Yeah, <clears throat> I think the fundamental principle of my leadership style is that Every human being is created with some gift to offer the world and that when they're exercising that gift, they're at their best. And the leader's job is to match the gift with the organizational goals. So to put people in a position where they're in the flow of doing what they enjoy doing, and that is both good for them 
and their professional development and their ultimate career goals and good for the organization. And too many leaders, I think, in too many organizations look at it through, look at the lens through the opposite side, which is, okay, I have these organizational goals. How do I fit people into them? And I like to look at it completely the other way around, which is what are people's goals and how do I align that with the organization? I really like, excuse me, I really like what you said there, because when you're, when you're answering that question, I kept thinking the word coach kept like coming to my head. Like when you are a coach for, let's say a basketball team, you're going to put your players, align your players with the skill sets that they have, right? You're not going to put a seven foot, uh, you know, center on the point guard. That's just, that's not his skill set or her skill set for that matter. And when you were talking about kind of your view there on leadership, that's what was coming through my head was, you know, you're aligning your employees skill sets and their goals to meet the needs and the goals of the organization. And like you said, not the other way around. And I think that's very powerful. Yeah, you brought up coaching. I, I don't often think of it that way, but you immediately drew a picture for me. I'm a I'm an NFL fan. I'm a Chiefs fan. But any any yeah, it was a good weekend for us. Any NFL observer will recognize that Bill Belichick was one of the most successful coaches of, of history. And he was able to do that, I think, year in and year out by changing his game plan to match the skill sets of the people he had in the organization. He was just one of the best at that. And the Patriots didn't often have the brightest stars in the NFL, and yet they were still able year in and year out to maintain organizational success. And I think you're onto something there when you say it's because the coach was developing a team philosophy that matched the people that he had on his team. Yeah. Well, and it also reminds me of a book called good to great, which is probably my, I talk about this book on this show all the time. One of my all time favorite books talks about making sure that you have the right people on the bus, but also that the right people are in the right seats. Uh, it's one thing to have the right people on the team, but if you have them in the wrong skill set or the wrong position, the wrong job uh, and they're, you know, they're destined to fail, but they could be the right fit for the organization, right? They could have the right mentality, the right mindset, the right leadership views. Um, and just because they're on the wrong spot doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a good fit for the company. And I, you know, obviously I interview CEOs and executives and leaders every single week on this, on this podcast. And I talk about that all the time. And um, that was a boss that, uh, you know, a long time ago that I worked for, he made every employee read that book. And that stuck out to me like a sore thumb. And I apply it now as the vice president of sales for my organization. I apply it in the same fashion, you know, making sure not only that the person that I'm hiring for a sales position is not only got the skill set to do it, but are they the right fit mentality? Are they the right fit, you know, mindset wise to lead the organization going forward? Ryan, I, uh, I love that book as well. Um, Jim Collins calls the principle you're talking about first who, then what, you know, get the right people in the organization, then figure out what to do with them. And one of the ways that plays out for us, we call the attribute we're seeking in all individuals loving the problem. And when I, when I said every, earlier that every human being is created with a gift, you know, loving the problem means we're looking for people whose gift is problem solving and 
creating and building things like we do as an organization. And when we find that attribute and we get them in the organization, if we find that, you know, three months, six months, nine months in that they're, they're not thriving in the organization, our first response to that is to ask not, did we hire the wrong person, but did we put them in the wrong place? And, and why, why aren't those gifts being exercised in ways that are profitable both for the person and for the organization? And we'll move them once or twice to make sure we get them in a place where they can thrive. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we've mentioned two books here in this episode. Um, I'm curious, sounds like you're a reader. Have there been any other books that you kind of have read in your past that have helped define your views on leadership? There have been. I, I, I am an inveterate reader, and it's hard to name just one, I guess. But one of the early books on leadership, and one that I think is, is still very good, is Douglas Southall Freeman on leadership. And Douglas Southall Freeman was a early 20th century, or excuse me, yeah, 20th century historian who kind of grew up on the knees of the Civil War generals. And he heard the Civil War stories, really developed a love for military history, went on to get a doctorate in history at Johns Hopkins, and then ended up teaching the next generation of military leaders. So George Patton, Dwight Eisenhower, they would have listened to Freeman give lectures at the War College um, at West Point and at the Naval Academy, Nimitz would have heard Freeman. And this book is just a collection of his speeches and essays on leadership. And I think it's excellent. But, you know, one of the things Freeman says is that a leader has three things to do, which is one, know your stuff. And that principle means that it's very hard to follow someone who is not some sort of expert in their field. You don't have to know more than all your people, but you can't be a dummy in the field that, that you're leading in. And in the military, that means to study the principles of naval warfare if you're a Navy officer or army warfare if you're an army officer. The, the second one is to be courageous, to have the courage to make the decisions that are necessary for the good of the organization and that any leader who's afraid to bear that responsibility is probably not going to be a leader worth their salt. And the third one is take care of your people. So know your stuff, be courageous, take care of your people. If you can kind of focus on and do those three things well, then you can be a leader of any organization. Yeah, no, I love all three principles. I'm a big, uh, a big uh, advocate for number three, taking care of your people. I'm obviously in the HR outsourcing space with Synchrony HR, where I work, um, you know, as my, what I call my day job uh, and taking care of your people and making sure, you know, kind of, it's all that same principle, right? Making sure you have the right people in the organization, but also making sure that you're taking care of the people that are there um, is, can be very, very impactful to the success of an organization overall. Agree. You know, Jason, I, uh, you know, I, I was, I was sitting here talking, I would get to thinking about some other things I'd love to ask you. And one of those was, you know, when you think of your career and you think of the 20 years you had in the Navy and now, you know, in the private sector, 
you know, if there's someone listening to this podcast right now and they're aspiring to be a leader uh, like yourself, what would you tell them is probably the most impactful thing that a leader should know? I think it's somewhat paradoxical, perhaps, Brian, but to be a great leader, you have to not focus on yourself and focus on your own leadership, right? I mean, in, in so far as you're focused on your own success and your own career, to that extent, you're probably doing your people and yourself a disservice. And so, and, you know, I, I think there are terms for this is called servant leadership. And I think that principle yep. is right, that when you're focused on yourself, you are probably not focused on the things you need to be focused on. And when you're focused on the people in your organization, you're focused on the organization itself and you're giving of yourself for those things to succeed, then the paradox is you're probably going to succeed yourself. Right. Right. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Jason, I always end this podcast by asking my guests to leave us with one piece of advice. So if that would be on your career, whether that's just business or whether that's just personal life in general, if you could leave us with one piece of advice today, what would it be? There's an ancient Greek poet named Pindar who in one of his poems has a quote that is, discover who you are and become it. Um, and for me, the way I think that plays out for leaders, I, I tell prospective leaders to study history, to study sports, any place where where it's likely that leaders are going to be found and find one whose style you think you could emulate, not necessarily doing the things they do. You know, if you don't have to be a military leader for a military officer, perhaps to be the leader you want to emulate. Um, but if you can find yourself emulating a style that's naturally aligned to the kind of person you are, then, uh, Find a biography, find a person, study up on them, and use their kind of style to foster your own leadership style. For me, it's George Patton. Um, I love the the fragility of his personality. He's 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 flawed. Anybody who knows his his story knows he's a flawed human being. But his his principle was audacity. Just have the audacity of doing what you believed in and and getting out there and being a leader and leading your people. And, and that's how I view my leadership principle. And I would just encourage others to find, find leaders that they believe in and that they could find themselves emulating and do so. Absolutely. No, I think that's great advice. It's a big reason why I started this podcast and I'm sharing, you know, the leaders we have here in St. Louis so that if, you know, you're listening to this episode and there's a leader on this podcast that you, you admire um, I would tell you to reach out to him. Most people I've had on this episode are on this on these episodes in the show are more than willing to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you and, and give you some advice on kind of your future. But um, it's, it's been one of the, the beautiful things that have come out of this podcast is, is sharing, sharing in that. So Jason, on behalf of not only myself and the STL leaders podcast, uh, we thank you for your service. Uh, we thank you for coming on here today and sharing your wisdom with us. Uh, and we appreciate you being a great STL leader. Thanks for the opportunity, Brian. It's been been fun.